But I do think that climate change sort of demands the better angels of our nature come out and do what they can to make sure that we define the suffering of people living elsewhere as significant and consequential and worth paying attention to. And hopefully we can build some institutions to channel that empathy as well. We have already done an enormous amount of COVID stimulus spending, all of us all around the world planning to do considerably more. And if we are able to see the climate opportunity in the COVID crisis and direct that stimulus spending in ways that will allow us to decarbonize and build climate resilience, I think we will be living in a very different world very quickly. Welcome to Straight Talk a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with David Wallace-Wells. David is a columnist and deputy editor at New York Magazine. He has been a national fellow at the New American Foundation and was previously the deputy editor of the Paris Review. He has written extensively on climate change and the near future of science and technology. In 2017, he published a cover story in New York Magazine that surveyed the worst case scenarios for global warming, which became the most read story the magazine had ever published. That story was expanded into his New York Times bestseller, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. David, welcome to the podcast. After I read your book, I called you and wanted to talk. You're not a scientist or a policymaker, but a very smart, talented journalist who has read the policy, read the science, and written a book which takes some of the most relevant of both and gives a reader an easy-to-understand picture of what Americans very well could face in the decades ahead. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. So... Let's start at the beginning. What led you to pursue your career in journalism? Well, I think that was about, you know, wanting to explore the world as a landscape of ideas unfolding in all different areas in culture and politics and society, individual lives. Um, the world just seemed too interesting to not want to think about in terms of stories. But I think I was a little bit at sea until I started, you know, until I fell into climate as a real subject which happened for me in about 2016, starting to read a lot more quite alarming research out of the world of climate science and looking around at my competitors, other, other magazines, other newspapers, other TV producers, and seeing that the stories that they were telling about climate just didn't match the science as I understood it. And feeling as a journalist, as a storyteller, but also just as a citizen, that there was this incredible disconnect. And that even I, someone who was pretty interested in the world, pretty interested in the future, had thought that I was up to date and up to speed on climate science, really, really didn't understand the scale or the scope or the speed of these changes that we were likely to be facing, not just at the end of the century, but you know, within my lifetime, within your lifetime, in ways that we really needed to respond urgently to now if we wanted to avoid futures that, you know, today looking out at the future, consider kind of unconscionable or unacceptable. And the deeper I got into that material, honestly, you know, for a long time, the scarier it looked. The last couple of years have been a little different. I think there's been a lot of progress and things are starting to look up, for me at least, but they're looking up from a quite grim baseline, which is where I was a few years ago. Yeah, so I want to get to that, but I want to go back a little bit earlier. So you write 
I think, brilliantly. And so where did this come from? Were you always interested in writing? When did you start writing? Did you write for your school newspaper? Did you, was it a particular teacher? Where did this gift come from and how did you develop it? Well, yeah, I mean, really honestly, as far back as I can remember, I was really interested in writing. I, as a little kid, I was writing, you know, chapter novels, um, age six, age eight, age 10. Both of my parents were big readers. My dad was a, um, an academic who became a, a public servant who worked for the city of New York. My mom was a public school teacher, but both of them really big readers. And my brother and I, we grew up in Riverdale. We ended up going to elementary school in East Harlem and then high school with a lot of kids who lived in Manhattan. And so we spent a lot of time on the subways and buses and we needed something to do, so we read. I think if we had been 20 years younger, we might've spent that time playing video games, but back then we ended up reading. And so both of us, my brother's also a journalist. He works for The New Yorker. Um, and both of us really started focusing on writing from an early age. But as I said a minute ago, I think it has a lot to do with just finding the world super interesting. When we were thinking about what we wanted to do with our lives, both of us, we didn't think that there was any one subject that we could commit ourselves to forever. And we thought being a journalist was a great way to be an intellectual dilettante. You get to learn about something for a couple of years, move on to something else, take a break for a couple of weeks, write a profile of somebody, and you get to sample everything that's fascinating and unfolding about the world. And, you know, it's been that way for me, although I've sort of settled into climate over the last little bit. Well, you know, the, the reason I wanted to explore that was uh, back in the day when I was in investment banking and hiring people, I like to hire English majors, right? And to me, people that were liberal arts majors, interested in many different things, learning how to communicate to me was a fascinating thing. And so I, I thought people that were English majors or people that had written for the school newspaper or whatever made great hires. So it's interesting, you know, when I started writing about climate science, I encountered all of these scientists who would say, we have such a hard time communicating the science and making people really understand the scale of what's happening. And I said, are you kidding me? Look at these numbers. They're terrifying poetry. All you have to do is be honest about them and, you know, tell the story forthrightly. And anyone who's listening with open ears is going to be quite alarmed and motivated by it. And that's been my experience that, you know, the science itself does a lot of the teaching. On the other hand, I guess it's my background that leads me to see the science in those terms and be able to write about it in that way. Yeah. So now I think you maybe have largely answer this question, but I want to just really bring it out because I've talked with scientists and environmentalists and policy leaders on this podcast about climate change. And this is a complex issue. They tend to approach it in different ways. You know, none of them approach it quite the same way. And so what is the role for journalists? I want you to, to just again, describe your approach to the issue. Well, honestly, my approach was to start from my own response as a reader of this science, which is to say, fear. I read about what the world was going to look like at three or four or five degrees of warming, which I no longer think that those are sort of exactly where we're headed. I think that they're sort of on the worst end of the spectrum, but a few years ago, they seemed to be right in the middle of the target of where we're headed. And the world at those temperature levels just seemed to me quite different, full of much more suffering, much more strife and much bigger challenges to the kinds of human flourishing that anyone alive today would wanna to see. And I felt a kind of a trembling in myself that shook a lot of my basic intuitions about the world. You know, I'm born in 1982, which means that I grew up really in the 1990s. I came of age in that era in New York City. I felt myself you know, protected from the forces of nature, but also sort of carried along 
into the waves of history by you know, the success of the American experiment and by the power and goodness of markets. Now, I didn't think that those things were purely good. I thought that they were things we needed to guard against them. But I also thought that you know, if you fast forwarded 50 years into the future, the world was gonna be more prosperous and more just and probably more like the United States. I felt that very much in my core. And a number of things happened over the course of my adulthood that have shaken some of those intuitions at a basic level. But my waking up to climate change is maybe the most profound because I think it really does represent a genuine threat, not just to the kind of life that we lead today, but also the very project of projecting into the future, you know, more hopeful generations down the line. And I think humans are an incredibly adaptable and resilient species. And I think that we will, in, you know, figure out ways to live and thrive in that new world. But it feels to me a much more open question how we will do it, burdening whom, privileging whom, than it would have seemed to me 10 or 15 years ago when I really did feel as though some of these very fundamental questions about the shape of history and the picture of, of the future that I had felt quite settled to me. And I wanted to communicate all of that to readers, you know, not just about the intensity of storms to come or the difficulty with agriculture or the effect on some more emerging areas of climate science having to do with economic impacts or conflict, that kind of thing, but also what it would mean to be alive in that new world and thinking about what the future could hold. Um, those are really quite, I don't know, fundamental, philosophical, emotional issues that are raised by this. And I don't think anyone had quite adequately dealt with them before. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think your book, The Uninhabitable Earth, did just that in a compelling and I think sobering way. So, you know, it's one thing to understand in the abstract that climate change is going to raise the global temperatures or the glaciers are melting at this or that rate. But you managed to write about climate change in a way that is vivid and concrete and describing the way our lives are very likely to change in the not too distant future. One section of your book covers what you call the elements of chaos. And you paint a picture of economic crises, unbreathable air, geopolitical conflict. So I'd like to drill down on a few of these dangers. So let's start with sort of the most basic and one that I dealt with from an economic standpoint when I co-chaired this risky business study on the economic impacts of climate. So let's talk about extreme heat. So even under moderate warming scenarios, a city like Calcutta is looking at several hundred days of potentially lethal heat by just 2050. Help our listeners understand implications of this heat and how this affects everyday life. Well, one thing I think it's really important to understand is for lay listeners, lay readers, people who are not super engaged in the science is that all of these effects are not binary. So when we say lethal heat, it doesn't mean you walk outside and immediately you drop dead and you can't, you know, you can't survive that heat. But it means that it is a level of heat and humidity that human bodies have a hard time processing and thriving in, especially exercising and laboring outside under. And that means that for large parts of the year, many cities, Calcutta is one example, but there are a huge number all across South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, in some places in the Americas, although there are fewer of them there, it will be difficult to go outside and say, go for a run, go for a walk, run an errand, work outside if what you do is work outside, 
without risking some heat stroke or possibly heat death. When you look at the kind of heat waves that we saw, say, in 2003 across Europe, where tens of thousands of people died because of direct heat, these are the kinds of effects we're talking about. But it's that heat level, that combination of heat and humidity is going to be not just, you know, a two-week period once every 15 years. It's going to mean the entire summer and even straddling some parts of the spring and, and fall for huge parts of the globe that are today home to several billion people. And we will, I'm sure, figure out some ways of adapting to that, building out more air conditioning capacity, cooling centers. You know, culturally, those places will, you know, I'm sure learn to start drinking more water and that kind of thing. But the kind of challenge that it represents to everything that those communities have always taken for granted about the daily rhythms of their lives and their own work lives will be totally disrupted. David, what, what kinds of temperatures are you talking about? So put, put a number on it. Well, it sort of depends. It's, it's heat and humidity. So it's not just heat, but it's, you know, yeah. um, it's, you know, something in the, once you get up into the 120s, if you have any amount of humidity at all, it becomes quite difficult for the human body to, you know, to cool off, which is what it has to do in order to survive under those conditions. It's, you know, essentially the, the opposite of hypothermia, where your body's not able to keep warm enough to live. In this case, your body's not able to cool off enough and you start to, your organs start to fail in relatively short order, which is a quite gruesome way to die. Now, a lot of people won't die, they'll just get sick, they'll have heat stroke. But we're talking about, you know, without interventions, we're talking about many, many millions of people having to deal with this every year. So it's not, it's not at all like something to engineer on the margins. It's a, it's a very fundamental direct threat to the way that people are living in those cities today. And when we looked at it, even in the U.S., it's not extreme, obviously, as Calcutta or cities in the Middle East. But when you look at places like Arizona and Texas and so on, there are extended periods of time where it's very, very hot. Yeah, I think yeah. the summer in Arizona, maybe especially in Phoenix, there were, I don't know, something like 50 straight days where it was over 100 degrees. And these trends are, you know, just continuing. It's get, it gets so hot now that it's often they have to suspend flights in and out of the Phoenix airport because the heat changes the wind dynamic, you know, around the plane's wings. So that's just, you know, another set of considerations that we're going to have to be thinking about along with, say, you know, the bending of train tracks because of heat and other kind of infrastructure that's likely to buckle under these conditions. So let's talk about a second danger you discussed is wildfires. And over the past year, the world was horrified by raging fires in Australia and across the West Coast of America. But in your book, you write, these fires might be thought of as the good old days. So how much worse can it get? Well, most scientists would tell you that at about two degrees, which I think is sort of a best case scenario that we're almost inevitably going to reach. Two degrees of warming. Yeah, two degrees so, so. of warming. Roughly twice what we have today, maybe a little less than what we have today. We're going to have a six-fold increase in the number of fire, the acres burned in the American West. And that's notable, especially because we've already had something like a 900% increase over the last three or four decades. So we're talking about, you know, a quite dramatic jump from everything that we learned was normal, quote unquote normal, in the middle of the 20th century in the American West. Now, climate is a driver here, but it's actually not the whole story. American Forest Services essentially started suppressing all fire in the middle of the last century. And that has resulted in an enormous buildup of what fire people call fuel, which we would know just as dead wood. And that means that much of the 
Western half of the continent is much more flammable than it would be in a normal, you know, quote unquote, normal, untouched environment. And that means I think that there is some hope for taking measures independent of stopping warming, that we can send out kind of new civilian conservation corps to thin out the trees of the American West and clear brush. And we can employ many more firefighters to manage what are called controlled burning that can um, sort of limit the amount of additional new growth of fuel. On the other hand, if, you know, this year's fires were twice as bad, more than twice as bad as the worst previous year in California history, which was just two years ago. And that that season, just two years ago, was many times worse than the previous worst season in modern California history. And if we're talking about from that baseline growing sixfold in a best case scenario, I think it starts to tell you about all of the different kinds of measures we're going to have to take to continue to live in a place like California, expecting the things that we expect today. I think it's gonna really be a meaningful disruption. We're gonna to have to start building in the wildfire, wildland urban interface. We're gonna to have to start building in different ways, probably build more densely in the cities so that we're not pushing development all the way out into the forests. And possibly also just being a little more comfortable with fire in our backyard, which, you know, it's a little, especially as a New Yorker, it's a little hard to really understand that. But a lot of Californians say that they're already there. You know, everybody who lives in LA that I know has a go bag that they keep by the door. That seems to me to be such a sign of the apocalypse. And yet for them, it's just, you know, the way that they live. Yeah, it's interesting, David, because I think as people think about climate change, they often don't make the distinction they need to make between the mitigation, you know, reducing the emissions we need to avoid the very worst, you know, longer term outcomes. And then all the, the climate weather shocks that we're gonna have no matter what we do, just based upon the carbon dioxide that's already in the air. And so, so much of what we need to do has to do with it, adaptation and resilience. And, you know, are we people gonna to continue to be able to live in some of these areas? And what are we gonna to have to do to thin the forests and so on, the things that you talk about? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I do think that for a while, the climate community has been really reluctant to talk about adaptation because they see it as an excuse not to take action on mitigation. But I think we're now at a point where we know that we're going to get enough warming, that we're going to need quite large scale global adaptation measures to deal with this new future. And we shouldn't be scared to talk about it or start investing in it, especially since many of those infrastructure projects will take many decades to complete. Yeah, and we've got so many flawed policies because we have flawed policies where we continue to encourage people to build homes where they shouldn't, uh, to plant crops where they shouldn't. So there's a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, and now, I mean, in California, I think the number is 60% of new residential development since 1990 has taken place in high wildfire risk areas, which is just kind of unconscionable from a public policy planning perspective. Yeah. So a third danger you wrote very presciently about, one that is particularly relevant today, is what you call the plagues of warming. What is the connection between climate change and pandemics? Well, there are a few different connections. In the first instance, we are going to see a wild expansion of the ecological footprint of many of the species that carry disease, namely mosquitoes, but other species like that. Mosquitoes are today still mostly confined to the tropics, and that means all of the diseases that they carry are really limited to those areas. But by 2050 or 2075, 
on you know, even moderate warming scenarios, we could be seeing that footprint expand all the way up through you know, New York or Boston and even farther north into Europe. I've seen some studies suggesting we could be seeing the major mosquitoes flying through Stockholm by the end of the century. And that means that diseases like malaria and dengue which we think of as being you know, essentially equatorial diseases are going to become global diseases. Now it happens that most of the nations that are you know, in the North have public health capacity and wealth to combat these diseases. It's not going to produce a totally devastating you know, new plague, but it will require a new kind of vigilance and a new kind of focus and a different public health approach in all of those places to protect against many of these diseases. That's one challenge. Another is that through the continued development of previously untouched ecological areas, we're just seeing many animal populations and bacterial and viral populations disrupted by um, human activity. And that means that we're kind of being brought into contact with new diseases for the first time. This is how all pandemics, all plagues start, is you know some new human population encounters an animal population for the first time and a disease makes a jump. It's probably what happened at the beginning of the pandemic that we're living through now. And we're likely to see many more of those instances going forward as we continue to sort of degrade the natural ecosystems of the world and penetrate further and further into areas that humans really haven't penetrated before. Then there are other issues about how changes in global temperature may affect the transmission rates of disease. Changes in humidity can also play a role, but those are less central. And in the book, I also talk about some quite eye-opening examples, which most scientists don't say are all that worth worrying about on a global scale, but which I think are also useful just in illustrating just how dramatically different this world that we'll all be living in will be, which is diseases that have been released from melting Arctic ice. You know, again, this is, most people don't believe that we're gonna have the bubonic plague come out from the Arctic, and yet it is there, and it, is, it has been released. We have found it in those ice cores, and we have already seen a case of anthrax coming from a thawing reindeer carcass that had been frozen for about a century. That anthrax coming out of that carcass, infecting a number of reindeer who died, but also a Russian boy who died and a number of other people who survived. So we're already seeing you know, what some climate scientists call the forces of global weirding when it comes to disease. And we're probably going to see you know, a fair amount more of that going forward. Wow. So let's, you know, we've covered some pretty scary things, but of all the elements of chaos, what are you most worried about? The thing I'm most worried about is the resilience of our human institutions and our capacity for global empathy. When I think about the way that um, the most intense impacts of climate change are concentrated in the global south on populations who have the least capacity to respond, the least resources, and who might feel the most pressure to migrate I look around and I see a world that is not all that sensitive to those needs and that suffering and a number of human political institutions, which to me don't seem all that up to the task of managing such a transformation. You know, I would like to hope that we can evolve those institutions and evolve our capacity for empathy going forward. But I think it's, it's very much an open question. And I do worry that one response among Americans and people in Europe in particular to the increasing intensity of climate change will be to sort of turn away from the suffering of people living elsewhere in the world, defining it as sort of insignificant or inconsequential to their lives. And as a result, consigning perhaps tens of millions or even hundreds of millions, possibly even billions of people to much, much more suffering than they, than they would need to. I don't know what the solution to that is. I don't know exactly what path there is forward. You know, it doesn't seem to me like any of the institutions we have today are exactly capable 
of engineering a better response. But I do think that climate change sort of demands the better angels of our nature come out and do what they can to make sure that we define the suffering of people living elsewhere as significant and consequential and worth paying attention to. And hopefully we can build some institutions to channel that empathy as well. I tell you, amen to that. And I'm hoping that the pandemic is shown a bright light on the vulnerabilities we have and the lack of capacity we have at the global level. Because what you see is this is shown not just in the WHO, but that the IMF, that the multilateral institutions don't have either the financial capacity or the technical capacity to do the job that they need to do. And there's all kinds of you know, people debate, say, do we need to invent new institutions? And we don't, we need to update those. And what it takes is the major countries coming together and doing the hard work to update them so that they work in today's world. And we have a whole range of institutions that need to be updated, you know, in, in terms of the WTO for world trade. But I think right now, when you look at what needs to be done and how hard the pandemic has hit, just take Latin America and just look at the toll it has taken in terms of deaths and human suffering and the economic devastation or the economic devastation in Africa with tourism, we are going to need to provide the kind of economic relief and stimulus that it's going to take to get those countries back on their feet. And, and right now, it's not being done. I think that that's, it's actually in a strange way, in a kind of tragic way, it's offered an incredible opportunity for climate because we have already done an enormous amount of COVID stimulus spending. All of us all around the world planning to do considerably more, actually at a level as you well know, beyond what governments have done in a very, very long time. And where we direct that money to what purposes is still very much an open question. And if we are able to see the climate opportunity in the COVID crisis and direct that stimulus spending in ways that will allow us to decarbonize and build climate resilience, I think we will be living in a very different world very quickly. I was recently actually talking to Christiana Figueres, the former head of the UNFCC about this. And she is like, I didn't expect to have this kind of an opportunity to rewrite the climate possibilities of the future for a very long time. But I'm also worried that this period of free spending may end soon. So we have to take action right now if we really wanna take advantage. Yeah, well, I have spent a lot of time thinking about that not just in the US, but in Latin America, where you know there's gonna be a lot of stimulus that's needed. And I think, and I'm hopeful, that you will find money come there if there's a green element to this. And if we're looking at a sustainable recovery. And I'm really, really hoping and expecting that with a President Biden, we're gonna see that when we get beyond the immediate relief and we start looking at investing in infrastructure. But I want to go to another question here. So the risks, you know, as we've all said, are becoming increasingly apparent, and yet we're nowhere close to being on the right track to avoiding some of the worst climate outcomes. So why has meaningful action been so elusive? What makes climate policy so difficult? <laughs> Big question. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that there are an enormous number of factors that go into it from the very individual level where we prefer not to think all that hard about bleak outcomes 
to the difficulties at the geopolitical level where countries have been reluctant to take action without seeing their rivals take action at the same time. And it really at every level in between. But I would sort of flip the question on its head and say, personally, over the last few years, I've seen much more opportunity for climate progress than I thought was possible just a few years ago. And I think that that's because of a couple of factors happening at once. One of them is simply a global awakening to the issue. I think that has to do in particular with the increasing number of natural disasters that have hit, especially the Northern hemisphere. 10 years ago, you could see the effects of climate change, but you really had to look at the equator of the planet. And now you can see them in the United States and in um, Europe. And, and as a result, many people in those places are much more concerned. You see that concern activated in the climate strikes and you know the, the protest movements and the broadening social concern that has elevated climate, maybe not to a first order political concern in all countries of the world, but a sort of, you know, a top tier political concern. I think that there's also been a real revolution in the way that economists see the opportunities here, that a decade or so ago, many people would tell you, okay, climate action is morally virtuous, but it is expensive, far more expensive than the payback will be. And so we would have to undertake it as a kind of a burden. And that meant, especially for countries in the developing world, the dilemma was really difficult. Did you want to you know, consign your population to a longer period of poverty for the sake of decarbonizing? Or did you want to give them a leg up into the global middle class at the cost of faster industrialization and more emissions? This is how many people in the developing world, and indeed many people in the global north looking at the developing world saw the issue until quite recently. But over the last couple of years, I feel, I'd be curious to know what you think, because in particular of the renewable price revolution, a lot of that calculus has really changed. And especially because we're becoming more sophisticated in our understanding of what not taking action would mean, we are also seeing very clearly the cost benefit analysis just says, faster action will be better than slower action almost everywhere in the world. And that's true you know, at the social level when we're talking about eliminating air pollution that kills 9 million people a year and consigns many others to horrible health conditions. But it's also level, true at the local level where you, know, you can see greater job growth you know, potential for cheaper electricity right around the corner. And this is, you know, to me, a really exciting and important sort of tipping point that we've seen just over the last couple of years where policymakers no longer have to see climate action as a moral good, but can see it, they can see it in those terms because it is, you know, it is that, but it also has a really strong economic argument for it. And I think that's one reason why we're beginning to see all of the pledges that we've seen over the last year, even in the midst of the pandemic, which is such a challenging time for new policy. We're seeing this major aggressive new pledge by China, which I'd actually love to hear your thoughts about. Also Japan and South Korea, the EU, so much more ambition than we saw even in the Paris Accords a few years ago. And maybe most notably, all of these pledges being done not in the context of an international negotiation where people are bullying each other and shaming each other into taking action, but just in the internal deliberations of those countries thinking we will be better off ourselves if we move quicker. That is not a calculus that almost any policymaker was making just a few years ago. And now it seems to be the thinking of nearly every leader anywhere in the world. So David, I agree with you that there's a clear tipping point and it's happened in the last two years. And uh, I think there's a greater understanding 
that we're going to need to rewire, re-engineer society, our economic system. And there's a lot of things that are leading to this. You know, I, I read your book, and I'm glad you've ended on this positive note, because I read your book, and you could be really depressed, but you could look at it as a powerful, powerful call to action, okay? And at the end of the day, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take action by the public. So I think this is where a lot of this is coming from. You're seeing, I think, very aggressive consumerism, right? People don't just order an Uber. They want a green Uber and they want longer. They buy sneakers where they be able to read just what the carbon impact is. You look at companies, you know, making all these net zero pledges. And it's to me difficult to see how they're going to meet them all. But, yeah. <laughs> but where are the carbon credits are going to come from? And in terms of investing, I never thought I'd go back to the private sector again for part of the time, because right now there's all kinds of things being done. You're just not talking about contracted renewables and venture. There's a whole range of profitable investments. And it's, it's going to take, you know, for us to solve this problem, it's going to take trillions and trillions of capital. Governments don't have all that money. So the capital is going to come when you can get an attractive return and then you know, I'll mention last one of the things you mentioned, which is, you know, the, the way that the costs have come down and something like solar. And when you look in uh, a good number of countries that, you know, solar energy is close to economic grid parity. So there's an economic case. And, you know, when we first did the risky business study on the economic impact of climate change, we were trying to get people to look at this as an economic issue. I think increasingly people are doing that. So I'm really glad we ended on a positive note. And to me, communication is a gift and you've got a great gift. And I hope you keep writing about these issues and I'm hoping that your next book is more positive. <laughs> but it's important. I, I tell you, your last one really was a compelling case for action. So thank you very much. Oh, it's been great to talk to you. And I really appreciate the time. I hope we cross paths again sometime soon. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.